Uh, well, uh, good evening, afternoon, SBF. Um, great to see you, and particularly warm welcome if you're new with us. I know there are a few new people. I hope you're encouraged by your time gathering with us. We're about to hear from God's Word, so let's ask God to help us to understand it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your Word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We pray that um, as we hear your word, you would give us the faith to hear your word, the knowledge to understand it, and the will to put it into practice. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, in 1938, the British Prime Minister agreed with Hitler to give Hitler part of a country close to Germany. And the Prime Minister claimed this deal had averted another massive European war. He famously said, My good friends, for the second time in our history, a British Prime Minister has returned from Germany, bringing peace with honour. I believe it is a peace for our time. Go home and get a nice, quiet sleep. However, the British Prime Minister and his accommodating stance along with other factors, convinced Hitler that Britain and France wouldn't resist if he went on to take Poland, which is what started World War II. The Prime Minister's actions had huge consequences. World War II was the deadliest war ever. 50 to 85 million people died. And it left England and the rest of the world under the threat of the Nazi regime. One person's failure, one person's sin, can have serious consequences, which can even affect entire nations. And we've all experienced failure in our lives or in our Christian walks from time to time. Have you ever seen God turn these situations around? Can God restore us after we fail? Well, in chapter 7, Israel have failed. Achan coveted the devoted things, and this left all of Israel under the threat of judgment in chapter 7, verse 2. Relationship with God and his people is at risk because of the sin of one man. And as a result, they were completely defeated by Ai, and they fled away from them in fear. And we're left wondering, can God's unfaithful people be restored? And if they are to be restored, well, salvation must come from someone greater than them. Must come from God. And that's exactly what we see in chapter 8, where God brings victory out of defeat and he brings victory through remembering God's word. So firstly, God brings victory out of defeat. In chapter 7, we see Joshua, God's chosen leader, steps in to preserve the holiness of God's people. In an act of obedience to God, in verse 25 of chapter 7, Achan, he has Achan and his family struck down and burnt along with all the other devoted things, demonstrating just how serious sin really is. And in verse 26, the Lord turns from his fierce anger. And so in chapter 8, verse 1, God reassures Joshua that he is no longer angry with Israel and tells Joshua he can now get on with the conquest. And in verse 2, God gives instructions for what Joshua must do. The Israelites were now to do to Ai just as they had done to Jericho. But unlike Jericho, now they could keep the spoils of war for themselves. 
And what is going on? I mean, if everything has just happened is a reminder we're meant to not take the devoted things. But I think that the point is, if everything belonged to God, he could choose to use it for their material needs if he so chose. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God had promised to give Israel houses full of things they didn't provide and vineyards that they didn't plant. So God's choice to give Israel all the spoils highlights just how generous God is, but also how needless Achan's coveting really was. One writer has said, coveting does not result because we have something, don't have something. We covet because we fail to believe something. Achan had forgotten God's amazing provision for them in the wilderness. For for 40 years he provided manna in the wilderness. And he failed to believe the promise God made in Deuteronomy 6 of abundant provision. When do we covet? Well, often it's we covet where we compare ourselves to others the most. We compare universities. We might compare friends. We might compare jobs, maybe trials, maybe gifts, maybe ministries. All the while falsely believing that another person is getting it all and we're missing out. That God doesn't want what's best for us. And we forget God's faithful provision in the past and his promise to provide for our needs in the future. I remember when I finished uh, more theological college, God had uh, lovingly sustained us the whole way through, but we had to sell both our cars to uh, to help contribute to get us through. And I remember when we got to the end of more college, we had zero dollars in the bank account. And those kind of situations, it's easy to wonder, like, God, what are you going to do? You know, I've served you, all that sort of thing. But what did God do? Well, just at that point in time, um, I was given my grandfather's trust money, which paid for us to have a car, and my mum sold her property in the country, which enabled um, Pip and I to get an apartment, and that apartment, which we just happened to get in Strathfield, we didn't realise that three years later, I would get a job in Strathfield, and the house would be right between this church work and my university work. So it's an amazing, like, God's faithfulness and his provision in such timely and unexpected ways. And yet sometimes I walk down the streets of Strathfield and I covet some of the houses. Particularly, there's a lot of them that have these underground car parks. I don't know what it is, but so many of them have it. And I'm like, wow, that'd be nice, just for some reason to go down into a car park. I don't know why. And then Pitt reminds me, if it floods, it's a death trap. So I go, ah, better not to have one. Well, it's in these times we need to remind ourselves of how faithful God has been to us in the past. And that no matter what we have, or what we feel we don't have, we have something far greater through Christ. Peace with God and hope of being with him in paradise forever. Henry Ford, the famous car manufacturer, once defined a mistake or failure as an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Well, Israel has a chance, an opportunity to begin again more intelligently through trusting God's word. And having received this reassurance and instruction from God, in verse 4 to 8, Joshua instructs Israel in a strategy. And the strategy is all about distraction. And what's really interesting is to see how the verb to see is driving the narrative through this chapter. 
Where it says, behold, you shall lie in ambush in verse 4, it literally says in the original, see, you shall lie in ambush. In order that the enemy may not see the truth about the ambush. It's like a magician where you're meant to look at one hand while he distracts you from seeing what he's doing with the other hand. And so, in verse 9 to 13, the distraction is set. And if you can see um, the, the slide up here, Israel, Joshua leads his main force, which assembles north of Ai, and that's the black dotted line that goes up north, while 5,000 troops, which is the red dotted line, are sent by night to hide west of Ai. Now, Israel has failed against Ai before. Now, imagine how they might be feeling. Now, I've lost against my wife in Monopoly maybe the last 5 to 20 times, so I'm not very hopeful of winning the next time. I don't know if she's got money under the board or something. Um, well, the tension builds. Will God's plan work? Will God's sinful people be restored? And again, we see the use of the, the verb to see in verse 14. The king of Ai saw what Joshua wanted him to see. The significance is that he does not see the ambush that lies in wait for him. And after the men of Ai were lured away from the city, as you can see in this slide, well, the verb see is used again in verse 20. The army of Ai now see their city is on fire, with its smoke rising up to heaven like a sacrifice pleasing to God. And now they see what Israel has really planned, and they're caught between the ambush force and the main force. And in an amazing reversal, the Israelites captured, burnt, and destroyed, in verse 19, Ai, and the Bethel Ai army, and its leader, and its defences. And verse 22 says they were struck down in the midst of Israel, just as Achan was in the previous chapter. And many of us are thinking, well, how could a loving God command the destruction of 12,000 people? But we must remember, they are not an innocent or good people. Leviticus 18 says they practiced incest, bestiality, and child sacrifice. God had patiently given them 400 years to turn back and repent. Now imagine someone telling you you had 400 years to change your ways. Well, God has been immeasurably patient. But unlike Rahab, they have not turned back. Such sin must be dealt with so Israel won't be corrupted by these evil practices. In verse 28 to 29, the king's body was hung on a tree until nightfall. And we'll probably cringe because of this barbaric treatment, but let's not get distracted from the significance of what's going on. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, it says, Cursed is anyone who is hung on a cross. Here is a solemn sign that he and his people, and all of Canaan for that matter, stand under God's curse. A reminder of the punishment that Israel has been spared. Now, as we look at this battle, there's an important question we need to ask. How does this victory come about? Was it merely Joshua's military strategy that won the day? 
Well, verse 18 forms the pivot and the turning point. Before that, they're running and fleeing, and it looks like they're losing. After that, they're victorious. What happened? As it was with Moses in Exodus chapter 17, in his, when the Israelites battled the Amalekites, in verse 18, Joshua is told by God to hold out the javelin in his hand. And verse 19 says, as soon as that he did that, the battle turned in Israel's favor. And his arm remained outstretched until the defeat of Ai was complete. So what's the significance of Joshua holding a javelin in his hand? How does that help him win victory? I did a P degree, I held many javelins, no one was impressed, and I can't imagine anyone being inspired to win a battle. Well, we see the answer in verse 18 to 19. Here God tells Joshua to stretch out the weapon in his hand that he might give the enemies into their hand, into his hand. And it was not with the might of Joshua and his javelin that the battle was won. All he did was hold the javelin in the air. Imagine him trying to boast in his javelin-holding abilities. I beat Moses' record against the Amalekites by 10 minutes. Huzzah! The, the javelin was ultimately a symbol of God's presence, that he was fighting for Israel. And much like Joshua and the trumpets back in chapter 6, God gave Joshua a victory that only God could take credit for. Well, how did God bring about this victory. Well, verse 5 says, And when they came out against us, um, when they come out against us just as before, we shall flee before them. I don't know if you've noticed that, but God uses the very same weakness and defeat of the Israelites in the previous chapter against the Canaanites to bring about his victory. In other words, God brings victory out of defeat. Often we question how God could possibly bring good out of a situation. The Christian life doesn't look like the triumphant life, the victorious life. Often we struggle with ongoing sin. Often our ministries don't look very impressive. Often it seems our evangelistic conversations come to nothing. And sometimes we're persecuted and mocked. Well, a couple of weeks ago it was announced that Sophia was going to be joining us doing a ministry apprenticeship. And I think to many people, in terms of the eyes of the world, it looks like a foolish decision. I remember when I told my unbelieving parents that I was considering full-time ministry, and they told me that I was wasting my education. Sophia is leaving a well-paying job and all the comforts and financial security that come with it to spend her time, sometimes often thanklessly, serving others where the only career advancement comes when she dies and is promoted to glory. In the eyes of the world, this isn't the best career move. Only someone who trusts in God, who brings a victory out of defeats, who sees possessing Christ, the pearl of great price, as greater riches than anything else we could possess on earth, who understands strength and wisdom is found under apparent weakness, would do what Sophia is doing. And what many of you are doing as you give up your time for many ministries around this church and thinking about the Bathurst mission coming up. Faith takes us further than we understand by reason alone. It takes us to Jericho. 
takes us to the ambush, takes us to Joshua's javelin. It takes us ultimately to the cross, where God's wisdom brought a miraculous victory through a seemingly defeated Messiah. Think of how utter that defeat seemed. Betrayed, mocked, tortured, killed. And yet, through the very same thing his enemies used to, de- to defeat him, namely death, he used it to bring a far greater victory. So that Paul could say, in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four, death is swallowed up in victory. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul calls the message of God's victory through a crucified Messiah a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who trust in Jesus, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, that we might boast in God alone. So Israel was to trust that God brings victory out of defeat. But Israel is a forgetful people, which brings me to my second point. God brings victory through remembering God's word. Now, chapter 8, verse 30 to 35, an abrupt shift occurs. Because in verse 29, we're standing at the gate of Ai and we're watching the king of Ai receive his last rites. Suddenly, in verse 30, we're more than 20 miles away from Ai, 20 miles north. And we've been whisked away to find ourselves at the shadow of Mount Ebal near Shechem, hearing the blessings and the curses of the law. But why now? Why now? Well, Israel has just experienced the curse of God's anger in chapter 7 and the blessing of his provision in chapter 8. So it makes sense to read the blessings and the curses now, as they can better take to heart the warnings and the promises that God lays before them as they look ahead at conquering the rest of Canaan. Furthermore, Israel has now been given two examples. The example of the faithfulness of Rahab, a believing Canaanite who in effect became an Israelite and was delivered from destruction and who now shares in the blessing of God and his people. And an example of unfaithfulness in Achan. The name Achan is likely a play on the name Canaan. Through Achan's disbelief and unfaithfulness, he in effect became a Canaanite, warning Israel that they don't become like Canaan and place themselves under the same judgment that God is bringing on Canaan. So this answers why now, but then the second question is why here? Because this is an important place where here is where Abraham had first received the promise of land in Genesis chapter 12, verse 6 to 7. And now, in Joshua 8, here is Abraham's descendants experiencing the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. God is demonstrating his grace by restoring his relationship with his sinful people. Joshua leads Israel by making sacrifices to God on an altar just like this one and by reading all the words of the law of Moses. The Israelite, as well as the foreigner, the young, as well as the old, everyone is to understand that their relationship with God and their success comes from remembering what God's word has said. And the victory that they just won testifies to the fact that God brings victory as they remember God's word. In verse 8, 
and verse 27, Joshua is said to have done everything according to the word of the Lord. The ambush, the devoting of Ai to destruction, the death of the king, the javelin. Because he believed what King David believed when he said it in Psalm 33. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. Wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Well, Pip and I just celebrated our 11th wedding anniversary yesterday. And almost every year we go back to where we had our wedding reception. And why do we do that? Well, so that we can be freed up from some of the distractions of everyday life. So that we can remember the promises we made to each other and give thanks for God's faithfulness to us. And this is similar to what Israel is doing. They are being reminded of God's promise and his faithfulness to them. Why? In Deuteronomy 8, God told them, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when I give you the land, then your heart will become proud. And you might say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. In other words, God knows Israel are forgetful, which leads them to becoming proud. And we are forgetful just like the Israelites. When we're busy, we often neglect reading God's word and relying on God for strength. When we're tempted, we often forget how serious God's um, serious sin is and the hopeless state that we were in before we trusted Jesus. When we're lower on funds, we often forget just how great and how timely God's provision for us has been in the past. And when we're wronged, we often act ungraciously because we forget how much God has been gracious to us. It's so easy to forget God's grace that has been lavished towards us and that we're in need of God's grace today just as much as we need it when we first trusted Jesus. Forgetful people need to be reminded of God's provision in Jesus and this is the key reason why we come to church, why you go to growth group, why many of you do one-to-one Bible reading right before you come to SBF, and why we take the Lord's Supper. Because when we hear God's word, we're reminded of who we are and what God has done for us and what he's promised to us. Like Israel at Shechem, it's so important that we continue to gather together every week so that we don't forget that God has provided a miraculous victory and a restored relationship through a greater Joshua. So attending church today is not just to help you remember God's promises today or even this week. It's for 20 years from now. It's for a time when you find yourself in a cancer ward or isolated from Christian fellowship like we've been experiencing through COVID. Or if you're in prison, prison for your faith. Or in terrible turmoil in your soul. Or alone at home in the middle of the night after you've just buried your loved one. Or for a time when you've just got a raise and you're working more hours at work. Or you're too busy in the future to look after your kids Uh, too busy in looking after your kids to get some solid time reading the Bible. Or you're being tempted into a sin that could ruin your family, ruin your life, ruin your ministry. There are seeds that are being planted today in your heart that may not blossom into full fruit until many years from now. By gathering each week, God is weaving a tapestry of remembrance 
to sustain you in the days to come. Just as the Israelites had many more battles still to come, our Christian race is still far from over. So we need to take the long view. And we have a leader far greater than Joshua who has won a victory far greater than Israel that we can remember today and in the future. Just as Joshua's hand was raised up, Jesus was raised up on a cross. But it wasn't the nails that held him there. It was his obedience to his father. Jesus, our king, was taking the curse of Deuteronomy, the curse that we deserve, upon himself. That God's anger might be turned away. Like Achan, Jesus was singled out for our sake. So when you're tempted to give up or to give in, remember Jesus has defeated our greatest enemies, sin, Satan and death, and victory was given into his hands. And while we have God-forgetful days, God won't forget us. But if you don't yet trust in Jesus and you're here today, remember Jesus died that we might receive the promise of a restored relationship just like Israel received. And that the heavenly land promised to Abraham that Canaan was always pointing to would be given generously to us who believe in Jesus. So returning to World War II, did England ever recover from the Prime Minister's mistake? Well, in the summer of 1940, England was practically defenceless before Hitler. Defeat loomed. Churchill, the new Prime Minister, could not defeat the Nazi regime with his army. And in that moment, he despaired of his own strength, he despaired of his army. He realised salvation must come from some, trusting someone better, someone, something greater. On the morning of May 18, 1940, Churchill stopped shaving and said, I think I see my way through. And someone said to him, do you mean we can avoid defeat? Of course I mean we can beat them, Churchill replied. I shall drag the United States in. And after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Churchill danced for joy when he heard the news that the U.S. would be fighting for them. And with the U.S. on their side, victory was secured. When all seems hopeless and our failure seems final, we can look to Jesus and remember God is with us and he has won the victory through someone far greater than our enemies. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great provision for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to, bear the, is to wear the crown, that you bring victory out of defeat, Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen through the deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. Through remembering your word, both now and in the future, maybe even many years from now, help us to find your light in our darkness, your life in our death, your joy in our sorrow, your grace in our sin, your riches in our poverty, and your glory in our defeats. In Jesus' name, amen.